open up your Bibles. I made it so easy for you today. It's Genesis chapter three, the very first book of the Bible. It's page three if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. So I don't, it doesn't get too much easier than that. So I want to encourage you to get your Bibles open. And you remember, those of you who were here last week, for some reason, Apple has given me an incredible power to know that when you are getting your AirPods open, to listen to something else other than me, it comes up on my iPad. I downloaded software that attaches your name. That's not true. I wish it did, that'd be hilarious. But I do wanna encourage all of us, get our Bibles open to Genesis chapter three. We'll stand in a little bit, but let me get you ready for what we're gonna be hearing this morning. I grew up in central New York. That's not upstate New York. For a lot of you, you, you think central and upstate's the same area. That's, those are fighting words to central New Yorkers, okay? I'm from the Syracuse, outside of Syracuse. But my father and my mom, along with three other couples, began a church. They started a church in Manlius, New York, which is a suburb of Syracuse. It was an independent Bible church, awesome, awesome non-denominational church. And we had two services every Sunday morning, and I had to go to both of them, of course. My dad was an elder at the church. And the first service was a youth Sunday school, and then there was a 30-minute break in between that and the worship service. My friends and I, just about every week, would jump into one of our cars, drive the five minutes it took to get to Temple's Dairy. Temple's Dairy was in Manlius, New York. And Temple's Dairy were fa was famous for particularly two donuts. One was headlights, and the other one was called the taillights. I'm just going to talk about the headlights. They were both pretty good, but the favorite of mine was, of course, a headlight donut. And the headlight donut looked like this. It was a big donut, and it was covered with chocolate frosting. And in the very center of the donut was a massive dollop of of cake frosting. It was glorious. It was very beautiful. Some of you are looking at my stomach right now. Stop. Yes, I grew up on donuts. That's why I have the manly girth that I have. I would eat these, I would eat these uh, headlight donuts like this, six bites. I always did this. I would eat around that center bite and save that center bite for the last. It was the best bite. It was the most delicious bite. How many of you are kind of like me? You might call that OCD. Yeah, right. So that's how I ate the headlight donut. That's what we're about, I think, to experience in the sermon series that we are starting today. The sermon series is called God on the Move. And what we're going to be looking at is this. You and I, Christian brother and sister, were made for God but that's not the only preposition. I'm gonna switch the preposition. You know, growing up, I had an English teacher. I don't know how she did it. I think it was sorcery. Somehow she made me memorize the preposition table. Of and by, to, for, with, add on front, and to, under, toward, between, down, among, over, cross, against. I don't know why I remember that. I remember almost nothing else from my high school classes, but I remember that. Well, I'm going to switch prepositions. We're not going to just look at we were made for God, but listen to this one. We were made to be with God, with God. And for the next six weeks, we're going to look at what I think is the donut 
hole in the middle, the best part of the donut, the overarching storyline that threads its way through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And you might be thinking, well, I know the storyline. I know the meta narrative. It's redemption. Well, I would tell you that redemption, which is the, bur- the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the son of God for the atonement of our sins, That's kind of the redemption in a nutshell. That is the most loving display in the Bible. That's the way we see God's love the most clear in the Bible. But that's not the overarching story. Here's the overarching story. Here's the meta narrative. Here's the story above all stories. For all of human history, God has been on the move. He is unfolding a plan that he has had since all eternity. And here's the plan. It's to dwell with his people who had become separated from him by sin. That's the story of the Bible. And you're going to see the end of the story, which lies ahead of us on Easter morning at the State Theater, if you choose to join us for Resurrection Sunday. But God is on the move to be with his people. And nothing, nothing can keep him from that goal. It is his mission. Let me just give you two glimpses of that mission. We could talk about it a lot, but let me just give you two. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength, where? To your holy abode, to be with you in your dwelling. Again, in Leviticus, Moses writes, I will put my dwelling place among you. This is what God is saying. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. This is the the overarching story. God wants to dwell among us. He wants to be with us, and nothing is going to keep him from it. He is the God on the move. Would you stand with me? We're going to read from Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to read a few verses, and I'll tell you where we're going when we read it. And we're going to start to see the beginning of this plan, and we're going to unfold it throughout the next five weeks. We're going to start at verse 8, Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Go down to verse 22, if you would. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You may be seated. All right, I've got some bad news for those of you who need an outline in a sermon because I have no outline for you today. Some of you are just probably going to get up and leave I have no outline. What I want you to do is just listen because we're launching this series today. And I just want to talk to you about the events that begins the history, 
the human history of God on the move. And it begins, it actually begins before verse eight, but let's look at verse eight again. If you would look at it one more time. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So let me catch you up to what has happened so far in Genesis. God created Adam and from him, from one of his ribs, he fashioned a wife for him. The name of his wife will become Eve, the mother of all living. That's what her name means. But by this point in the narrative of Genesis, her name, it's not a title. Her name is woman. It means in the Hebrew, out of man. God created Adam and then he created Eve. We're just going to call her Eve for simplicity's sake. And he planted a beautiful garden in an area called Eden. The garden is not called Eden. The garden is in a region on earth, an area on earth called Eden, up near Iraq, actually. And it's full of plants and animals. It's got rivers. It's got all kinds of fruit trees. And that garden was the home and the career and the workplace for, human, for humanity's first couple, Adam and Eve. They took care of the garden. They were given the garden. They could enjoy all of the garden, but one tree in the very middle of it. Not the tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, you may not eat from that tree. Now, we don't know what fruit was on that tree. A lot of people keep defaulting to apples. We have no indication of that. For all I know, it could be slices of Sicily 2 pepperoni pizza. That would be my favorite tree. Whatever it was, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And forbidding, God forbidding Adam and Eve from that tree, here's what he's doing. There's nothing inherently evil about that tree. God cannot create evil. Why he forbade them from that tree was he was testing them. Would they obey him? Would they love him and trust him more than they love themselves and trust in their own knowledge? This was a test. Genesis chapter three, verse one, coming into that garden, slithering, walking actually, was a serpent and that serpent was Satan in flesh and Satan began to speak only to the woman he he never spoke to Adam he only addressed the woman not because she's weaker not because women are inferior but because the type of temptation that the devil was launching was a type of temptation that would cater to a woman more than a man. Look how beautiful, how desirable that fruit is, that tree is. Those are feminine terms and feminine language. He only speaks to the woman and he gives her a false promise. He lies. If you will believe me and if you will eat from that tree, the serpent said, you will gain knowledge you will be like God. In other words, you will be able to shuck off God's control. You will have a measure of independence with God. You will not be at the bottom of the throne. You will occupy the throne with him. 
All you need to do is eat. And she fell for it. She ate. And the Bible says she gave some to Adam, who was not, it infers, in another part of the garden, who was with her the entire time. He did nothing to protect her. He wanted what the devil was offering. Together they failed the test. They defied God. They rebelled against God. They loved themselves more than God. That's the base. That's the foundation of every sin that any of us could ever commit. And with that sin, their innocence shattered. It left them exposed, guilty, hiding from each other. And very, very soon, hiding from God. You know, sin creates an automatic reflex in any of us to hide. Well, I told you I grew up in central New York. I grew up outside of Syracuse, about 25 minutes, in a little town called Derider. That town was so small, we had no stoplights. We had a main road coming in from Cortland that took a 90-degree turn in the center of the town and then went out towards Manlius, called Route 13. And my father bought, when I was two years old, he bought two and a half acres of land on a hill overlooking the main road, Route 13. The front of the house was about 100 feet away. And my dad was a builder. He built churches uh, all over New York State, school. He built homes, a barn, barns. He built our house. It was a two-story ranch house, and on the bottom story was all brick. And like normal, uh, he built a sidewalk going down the entire length of the front of the house. In between the sidewalk and the brick wall, he filled it with pea gravel. I was probably around eight, and I was bored. That is a lethal combination. I was out front, didn't know what to do. All of a sudden, this incredible thought popped into my head. I wonder if I could throw a rock from that sidewalk to Route 13, 100 feet away. I said, well, there's only one way to find out. So I reached down, I picked up one of those stones, and I reared back my arm and unleashed the throw of all throws of my eight years of life, except the moment my arm was swinging forward, beyond the point of stopping, in my peripheral vision, I saw a car coming from my left. And I would find out very shortly that car was driven by the guy that owned the ice cream shop across the road to our right. And it was his brand new car. Here he is driving. I mean, if God's not sovereign, I just proved it. That stone from my eight-year-old arm sailed, hit the road, and bounced off the side of his car. The moment that happened, he screeched his tires to a halt. I ran into the house, two-story ranch. We had a closet down below that we only used for winter coats. I burrowed into that closet, climbed into the back of it, and piled coats on top of me. I was never going to see the light of day again. He comes to the door. My mom answers it. He begins screaming and yelling. I don't know how my mom placated him. Eventually he left, and the moment that door shut, I heard her voice call out, Tim, get down here now. Came out of the closet, stood before my mom, and she said the words 
that mothers should only use if you have managed to burn the house down. You wait till your father gets home. I can't tell you how full of terror I was. My father, if he excelled in anything, he excelled in discipline. I went up to my room awaiting doom. I thought, why am I gonna wait for my execution? I took a suitcase out of my mom's closet, packed everything I owned into that suitcase, managed to zip it shut, snuck out the back door, and I went up into the hills. We had 20 miles of hills before you're gonna run into a house. I was gonna be Frodo, I was going to Mount Doom, I was never coming back again. Two hours later, every sound was a coyote. Every sound was a bobcat. Every sound was a potential bear. I finally was so scared. I walked back down to the house with my suitcase and took my doom, took my medicine, faced the music from my dad. But that's what sin does. Sin causes us to hide. Watch what happens with Adam and Eve. They're about to go into hiding. Here's what happens on that day of Genesis 3.8. It's the cool evening. The cool breeze is blowing. In the Mediterranean uh, climate, it's in the evening that you want to go out and relax. It's usually up on the roof of your home. They always built their dining facilities up on the roofs of their homes so that you could enjoy the cool evening breeze. So it's in the cool of the day. It's in the evening. Here comes God walking into the garden, and they heard him coming. The Hebrew for the word sound means voice. I'm not really sure what's going on. Maybe God was talking. Father, Son, Spirit. Maybe they were communicating with each other. Maybe, I think, this is my view, God's singing. Wouldn't that be amazing to hear God sing? To hear what Zephaniah 2 says, that the Lord sings and dances over you and me. Oh, that'd, be, that'd be huge. Or maybe it was like Acts 2. The day of Pentecost. Maybe it was a mighty rushing wind, the voice of God, bending trees over and rustling the leaves. I don't know what it was, but I do know this. God was not stopping by to say goodnight before he went up to his home in heaven. That's not what was happening because God's home was on earth in Eden. It was his dwelling place. It was his temple. It's where he would be with Adam and Eve. He came to earth to live. Don't you remember that they were commissioned by God? Multiply and what? Fill the earth. Don't you know that Eden, a specific geographical region on earth in which was the garden, was always meant to expand. It was always meant to grow, just like the kingdom of God, until God would dwell over the face of the entire earth with all of humanity. That was the plan. He came walking in the garden. You know, that's a Hebrew idiom for friendship. When I was in Africa back in 2017, uh, visiting and commissioning our building and restoring hope uh, in Dungu, uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, I, I saw often, Dirk was over there, Jeff Graham was over there. We saw men who would be walking down the road holding hands and we would see women 
walking down the road holding hands. And in my American mind, I terribly, I thought, and I said to Jeff, I said, Jeff, are they gay? Is that what this is? He says, no. No, in Africa, best friends, whether they're guys together or girls together, they hold hands. It's how they express their love for one another and their friendship. They do it in India as well. So when you get God walking, it's an idiom for friendship, walking into the garden, it really makes me try to get your eyes forward for a moment, because I really believe this is gonna happen. There will be a day, Christian brother and sister, in eternity, where Jesus says, come on with me. It's gonna be the two of you. And he's gonna reach out and he's gonna hold your hand. And you're gonna just walk through the country of heaven and talk and hold and enjoy. That's coming. God's walking in the garden, it's friendship. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite commentary writers said, loving God was as natural as breathing and as effortless. It was sweet fellowship. God with Adam and Eve face to face enjoying life. But I want you to think about something for a moment. Until Genesis 3, Adam and Eve truly lived the way that God designed them to live. Life is not God-designed life until he is with us and we are with him fully with no barriers. Life is not just the presence of cellular activity and brain waves and a beating heart. The life that God intends for us to have that Adam and Eve had was living in the love, the favor, and the presence of God. To be with God. It was physical. They heard him walking. They heard his voice. It was emotional. It was rational, spiritual. None of their longings would be unfulfilled. Do you not know that getting high from drugs, getting drunk, do you know where that comes from? At the deepest, most metaphysical roots of your heart is coming from a longing of what you no longer can have in the Garden of Eden. That's what that is. That lingering dissatisfaction in life, it's the evidence you're not in Eden. That loneliness, that depression, that grief, that sorrow, that restlessness, that shame, you cannot find the garden. That evasive pursuit for glory, the ever clamoring climb for promotions, that longing to be more beautiful, more thin, all of those are longings for what Adam and Eve had but lost in the Garden of Eden. They were absolutely fulfilled and now sin creates a vacuum. You know that every sermon I give, I experience this. You know, I write these sermons, I'm done. I always write them the week that I preach. I've tried getting ahead, it's just not the same. So I write it the week that I preach and I'm always done, Lord thankfully, by Thursday. And then I tweak them a little bit on Saturday, but I'm, I'm pretty much done by Thursday. But every time I finish it, Thursday by noon, without doubt, I just know it's gonna happen every single week. Something comes into me, deeply into me, going, I just can't capture 
what I know is there. There's more there, God, I just can't get it. That's what they had in the garden. That's what we can't have, but we will have one day. And that is the life that I'm talking about. They lost life, Genesis 1. And they lost life and all of their progeny, all of us lost life on that fateful day and death settled into our souls. And I'm not talking about stop breathing death. I'm talking about the collapse of innocence, that the shattering of glory, the loss of joy, the end of all that it should be, all of that was lost. Now listen, and it's into that mess that God comes walking in verse eight with all of his holiness, all of his blinding glory. And what should have been the best part of their day, the cool of the evening, the sound of the Lord God walking to be in friendship with them became in an instant their worst. Let me see if I can help you understand this a little bit more. Have you ever been in a friendship with somebody, let's say girls, have you ever been in a friendship with a lady that was just stunningly beautiful? Or guys, have you ever had a good close friendship with a, another guy that was just incredibly fit? Or have you ever been in the presence of someone just unbelievably smart, incredibly, incredibly confident, and you feel diminished? You feel inferior all of a sudden, your faults come to the tip of your awareness and it gnaws at you. Maybe, maybe it's a guy who is tall and, and you're a bit shorter and you feel your shortness when you're around them. You love them, you wanna be with them, but you feel your shortness. Or a girl who has a dazzling smile and when someone takes a picture of the two of you, you keep yours closed, your mouth closed because your smile you know cannot compare. You ever feel like that? Have you ever experienced this? If you have, then imagine what it was like for this newly shattered couple. The moment they heard God in all of his holiness, glory, and splendor coming. They've got fig leaves on. And those fig leaves cannot stop his penetrating eyes. So what do they do? They run and they hide behind trees. They flee from the one whom they had only known love and friendship because his beauty, his glory, his splendor is too great for them to be in his presence. And they know it instinctively. Do you realize that we always leave God before God would ever leave us. And the gospel says that God comes to us before we would ever come to him. And this is exactly what we're seeing unfold in Genesis chapter three, verse eight. God knew exactly what happened, yet he walked into that garden, not with anger, not with judgment, not with lightning bolts to annihilate them. He walked in there with his voice, maybe singing to call them out by his mercy. In fact, look at verse eight. Look at the name that we see in the Lord God. You know what that means? Lord, whenever you see it in the Old Testament, all small caps, that's Jehovah. 
And God here is Elohim. Jehovah is the faithful, personal, ever promise keeping God. God, Elohim, is the creator God who is the Lord and master and savior. So here we've got the Lord God. He brings together these two names. We've got the faithful, personal God who will always love you as, his, as your Lord and your master and your savior. And saving is what they needed because there's nothing they could do to fix the problem that they caused. Their fig leaves weren't working. Their hiding from God wasn't gonna work. They needed God's mercy. And Jehovah Elohim will never leave his children in sin. He drew them out of hiding. How did he do it? He asked questions. He did it with Jonah. He did it with Job. He did it with Moses. Jesus did it with Peter. God always asks questions. And those questions are meant to take you down deep in your heart to see what is really the problem and bring you to the surface to experience his mercy. His questions move us to confess. And they did. But not without trying to soften the blow by shifting the blame to other people. Adam, where are you? I was naked, God. So I hid behind trees. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes, I did. Listen, the woman you gave to me gave me some and I ate. He blames Eve, runs the bus over her, and then he blamed God because all sin has a vertical source, has a vertical target. He blames Eve, he blames God, and Eve only does slightly better in verse 13. She shifted the blame to the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. But God is holy and his judgment will fall and it will fall first on the devil and then it will fall on Eve and finally Adam and look what he says to Eve in his judgment he says to her I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children this is more than physical pain in giving birth to a child no this is the pain as well of rearing the child of raising the child of having a child that you love more than anything turn away from you defy you hurt you this is sorrow it's what solomon spoke about in proverbs 10 a wise son makes a glad father but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother eve god said you're going to taste the sorrow that you and Adam have caused me. Are you learning to see your sin? That it's more than just breaking a command of God, you're breaking the heart of God. You're grieving God like a wayward child grieves its mother. Sin always requires a living being to die in order to atone for it. Why? Sin brings death. Leviticus says life is in the blood. The only antidote then to a sin bringing death is to give a life 
bringing death. The animal, a life of an animal has to die. The life of an innocent has to die. Yet the blood of an animal can only cover sin. That's the best that it can do. It requires a much different sacrifice to take away sin. And what will that sacrifice be? It's 1 Peter 2. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Can't you see the sorrow in God in Genesis? Not only have you loved yourself, Adam and Eve, more than you loved me, not only did you not trust me and trusted the devil, it's going to require my son to die for you. Well, let me get a little more personal. Who is the Lord God walking in the garden? That is Jesus in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, I will be the one to die for you. You know, I think we often scrub God free of emotions, but can you imagine the sorrow in God's heart when he walked in the garden calling out to Adam and Eve, knowing full well what they had done and knowing that his son would one day die for their sins, our sins, yours and mine, all of our sins of those who are going to believe in him. But can I suggest something? I think there's another layer of sorrow that was coursing through God's heart. And you're going to see it now when we come to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. That was a mercy. Who wants to live forever in sinfulness? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And listen to this. He drove out the man. Eve's with him. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's what you need to understand. To, dr to, to drive them out of the garden was to drive them out of his presence. It's the father of the rebellious son that says, if you're going to live in this way, you cannot live in this home. And you need to leave next week. That's the true sorrow for every earthly father's heart. To drive them out of the garden was to drive them away from his presence. Eden was lost. There was no way back. It was guarded by the cherubim with a flaming sword. Yet all along, before God created the world, he planned for this moment. And his mission to dwell with his people all over the earth was not hindered. In fact, Nancy Guthrie brilliantly said, God's plan for his creation was then and remains now to establish his kingdom in a new creation, ruled by his son and his son's bride, who will share his glory and enjoy his presence in an eternal Sabbath rest. That's the plan of God, that we would enjoy his presence in an eternal Sabbath rest. If you come to the State Theater Resurrection morning, you're going to see the end of the plan. But for today... As I close, let me ask you a question. 
How can one enjoy God's presence? After all, it's what every one of our hearts are longing for. How can we enjoy his presence? There's only one way. It is through faith in Jesus, upon whom, listen, that terrible sword of fire of God's judgment fell. He's the one that took the cherubim sword, who also was driven from God's presence. Don't you remember Friday afternoon on Calvary when Jesus was minutes from dying? He yells out, my God, my God, why have you what? forsaken me. He was driven from God's presence. Jesus, who didn't even have fig leaves on the cross, he was naked and ashamed, just like Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. Why? Because Adam and Eve's and yours and my sins were all put on him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's by his death, the Bible says, that Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain where into the most holy place, the presence of God. It's only Jesus who can help you get to enjoy God forever. Well, what have I said then as I close? What have we seen? The overarching story of the Bible, my friends, is that God not only created us for his glory, he created us to be with him forever. And sin, sin makes that impossible. Therefore, sin cannot just be covered. It has to be removed. And the only thing that can remove sin that brings death is a life that dies and brings life. And the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can do it. And when you trust in Jesus, when you love Jesus, when you surrender to Jesus as your Elohim, your Lord, your creator, your master, your savior, the mercy of God flows and you are not only with him now through the spirit, you will be him with him one day face to face. I think being sung over by the very voice of Jesus and holding his hand as you walk through eternity. That's the future. But for the next five weeks, we're going to watch this plan unfold step by step. First in the temp tabernacle, then in the temple, then in the person of Jesus, then in the church by the spirit to finally reach the end of his plan, the mission accomplished. We are with God forever. I hope you're here. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this overarching story. I think it's the greatest story. It is that final bite of the center of the donut, the best bite. It's the greatest story. You love us so much that you want to be with us. I don't know why you want to be with us, the answer can only be that your, your love is so great that you'd want to be with messy people like us. I am so thankful for that. Help us to discover this truth. Reveal it to us. Let us see what we can never unsee. And that is the story of a God who is on the move to be with his people forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.